I, I shared a couple of weeks ago as we came into the new year that we're coming back to our study through the Gospel of Matthew. No better chapter than Matthew chapter 16 to define who we are as a congregation, as a church. And uh, we have gone very slowly through this chapter. There have been a number of topics. This week we'll conclude the chapter, and then we'll pick up the pace next week as we go into Matthew chapter 16. Now today we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, so uh, some things uh, most of us probably know, probably some, some things, and maybe just talking about things in a, in a maybe a different way than, than maybe we've ever heard before. So in the Bible, in the Gospels, Jesus, uh, you, we've, we've made reference that Jesus will speak very differently to different groups of people. So one day, and we saw this back in chapter 11, uh, Jesus is speaking to the crowd, and Jesus says there on the top of your outline, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and I've underlined that word, easy, and my burden is light. Now, Jesus was in the first century, certainly he's the Messiah, he's God in the flesh, he was, he was also a rabbi in that time. So people would refer to him as rabbi, uh, or rabboni, which means my teacher, my rabbi. And, uh, and so uh, a rabbi, when a rabbi went and taught, a rabbi taught their yoke. And uh, a yoke was, uh, you decided whether you wanted to follow that rabbi and take on their yoke. Their yoke was their teaching that they added to the, what the Bible said, you know, the Old Testament. So the Old Testament said this, so they would add certain things. So Jesus as a rabbi comes along and says, I want you to know that my yoke, unlike all the other yokes that are being taught out there, my yoke is very easy. And uh, my yoke is to give you rest and to not become a burden. The burden is light. So it was so easy that Jesus talks about my burden is easy, my yoke is light, um, that Paul would describe it like this there in your outline. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to maintain it. It's something that's given to you. You receive that free gift of salvation. And so if you're here today and you've never come to the place where you've received everything that Jesus wants to give you, that, that free gift of salvation, you, you receive that by saying, Jesus, I want that. I believe you are who you claim to be. I believe that you paid the price for my sins, and I want that. And once, once you receive that gift, it's yours, and, and nothing can take that away from you. Now, at that point, when Jesus says, uh, my burden is light, you know, my yoke is easy, uh, it's, it's at that point uh, that, that somebody becomes saved. They're free. They, they become a, a child of God. And, and, um, but, but there can be, there's more. There's more. Now, I grew up in Miami. How many of you come from Miami? We've all drifted up here, many of us. And I grew up in the 1960s and the 1970s. And uh, in that time period, there were, it seemed like on the news every single night or most nights, and sometimes you'd be at the beach and you'd see things that people would be risking everything to come to America. Now in those days it was primarily from Haiti and it was from Cuba, but the, you know, the, just whatever they could do to get to America. Now coming to America made somebody instantly free, it made them instantly safe, free from oppression. And, uh, but the thing is, it didn't make you a millionaire. 
it gave you the opportunity to go forward and become a millionaire if you wanted to, but coming to America made you free. Coming to Jesus makes you saved. It makes you free. And uh, you become part of God's family. It, it, but that, it, uh, that's the beginning. That's the beginning. So when I grew up in Miami, all of a sudden we began to see names of businesses that would be very different than the names that, that uh, we saw early, early on. As people would come to America, they would recognize the opportunity and they would seize the opportunity. They'd go for it. So they were free and then they took the opportunity. Coming to Jesus makes you free, it makes you saved. But it also gives you great opportunity if you want to seize that opportunity. But as we find in the early church, not everybody seized the opportunity and went beyond what we would call being saved, uh, becoming a child of God. And so we see certain things. So for instance, Paul in the early church would write this. He would, uh, to the church in Corinth, he'd say, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. They were saved, they were free, that Jesus had paid for their sins, they're part of the family, but they'd never really grown beyond that. And Paul points that out. Well, another time, Paul would say it like this. He'd say, by now you should be teachers. Instead, you still need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. They were saved, but they'd never seized the opportunity to go and become everything that God wanted them to become and everything that God wanted them to know. And still in the early church we find that some were saved, but they had what we would call major issues. Notice this verse. Paul says to people in the church, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. So not only did some people not grow, uh, they were kind of an embarrassment to the rest. It didn't mean they weren't saved, they weren't part of the church, but they were a mess spiritually. So what does it mean to seize the opportunity and to become everything that God has for us to become? Because by and large, many will never enter into all that God has for them. So we're going to talk a little bit today about discipleship. Now as we do this, we're going to look at four verses. Uh, Here's a book that's on my shelf in my office, and it's called The Complete Book of Discipleship. It is 350 pages long for a very good reason. Uh, it takes several hours to read this book, and, uh, but we're only going to take a few minutes to look at a few verses. So we might say this is the complete book of discipleship. What we're going to give today is just a few thoughts on discipleship. I say that just to say that there's so much more that we could talk about, so we're just going to focus in on what's here today. Is that okay? So you say okay like you mean it. Okay, good. All right, so we're going to pick it up in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like to stop right there, and I want you to write down on your outline that Jesus is speaking to disciples. Because he's speaking to disciples, uh, we would say that their salvation is settled. Their salvation is settled. Uh, So this is not going to be talking about what does it mean to be saved. This is going to be talking about what does it mean to be a follower, committed follower of Christ who's going to enter into all that God has for them. It's about seizing the opportunity. So, So verse 24 he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father and with the angels, and then he will repay every man according to his deeds. So there's a couple of things here. You have to keep in mind that Jesus is speaking to disciples about discipleship. Uh, We have to be careful that he's not talking about becoming saved. So that'll be important for our study. So what does it mean? He says, if any man wishes to come after me, uh, if any man wishes to come after me. So the first thing that we're going to find is that there has to be a desire. Go ahead and, and write that down. A desire. If anyone wishes and that tells us something which would be unique in that culture, very common in our culture, but, but unique in that culture. The invitation is open to anyone, if anyone wishes. So uh, things that we take for granted would be very strange in that first century Middle Eastern culture. Uh, here anyone would pertain to men, women, anyone of any race. And so this would be a, a, a little bit of a, a different mindset for those back in that first century. And so what does, that, what does that mean? You and I, we, we grew up in a very, very different culture. There in the, ancient, in the ancient world, in the New Testament, if you were in part of the Jewish community, the, uh, your schooling would begin at age five. And so you would go to the Torah school, and uh, it was called Torah. Now Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the Jewish people believed that God had spoken to the Jewish people at some point and given his word. And uh, one of the things that you find is that the Jewish words are very nimble. One word can have several different meanings. So Torah would often be referred to as the way. Torah would also be uh, referred to as the truth. And sometimes it would be referred to as the life. So when Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's a much bigger statement than, than we might think. So you would go to Torah school at age five, and you would begin memorizing the Torah. And uh, if you did that well, by the time that you were 10, uh, you would go on to the next section. Now most people would drop out at age 10 and they'd realize that this person's not the best of the best and so because they're not, you need to just go out and learn a trade and continue on in, in your life. But those who memorized the Torah and they could kind of spit it back and answer all the questions, they would go on to the next level. Now the next level would last another five years and in that level they would memorize the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. Uh, Which is why sometimes you're reading through the New Testament and Jesus refers to some verse in the Old Testament. You're like, what does that mean? Where is that? And everybody listening in the story just seems to get what he's talking about. When we talk about somebody knowing the word, they knew the word. And many of them had memorized even the entire Old Testament. Well, at that point, if, if you were the best of the best, your next step would be to attach yourself to a rabbi and uh, hopes to become a rabbi. Now in those days, a rabbi was as high of a status that you could, that you could have in, in that culture. So your goal in life was to become a rabbi. And so typically what you would do is uh, a rabbi, you'd find a rabbi who had a yoke that you liked, that you resonated with, and uh, you would go to that rabbi and you would, you would audition to be one of that rabbi's disciples. 
And, and so that discipleship would be from ages 15 to 30, and at age 30, if everybody agreed that you have what it has, what you needed, then you would become a rabbi yourself. So you would addition to become a, a, a disciple of a rabbi that you trusted. And so when you auditioned, the rabbi would say, um, quote Leviticus, and you just rattle it off. Quote um, you know, Deuteronomy, and of course they, they would rattle it off. He'd say something like, well, you know, the book of Amos refers to this 13 times, and they'd name something. Tell me each one of those references. And, the and so if the rabbi thought that this kid has what it takes, that is that the rabbi, not that the rabbi thought that this kid can know what I know, but this young disciple could do what I do, they would accept you. Remember Jesus says, these works that I do? He never says, this stuff that I know. In that day it was, could you do what I do? Now very interesting, in that day you would audition to become a disciple. Jesus is a rabbi who shows up and he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is very, very different than the other rabbis, but he also is not asking people to audition for him to see if they have what it takes. He's the one going after them saying, follow me, follow me. It was a very, very different way. And uh, it's interesting that when you look at the disciples that Jesus chose, they were fishermen, they were doing this, they were doing that, which implies that they were not somebody else's disciple, uh, which means that they were probably the C students of the day. That makes sense? And if you read some of the early encounters, then, then you see that. So in this discipleship, it has to begin with a desire. Do you want this? Do you want this? But then it goes to the next thing. Verse 24, it says, to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And it says, take up his cross and follow me. So there's going to have to be, in following him, a denial of the selfish, selfish nature. It's, it's not about you. It's about him. It's about what, what he wants. And uh, uh, for the disciple, the question is always, God, what do you want to do? It's not about what I want to do. It's about what God wants to do. So when he says he must deny himself, there is uh, self-denial and then there is the denial of self. And they're two very, very different things. So let me define those for us. When we enter into what we call self-denial, self-denial is when I deny myself something uh, to benefit me. And you want to write that down. Self-denial is when I deny myself something to benefit me. It's the new year, uh, we, we want to lose weight, and so we deny ourselves that dessert because we want to have something that will benefit us. We want to attain that. You go to college and uh, you deny yourself um, you know, some of the, the fun things going on uh, in order to have a high GPA. Clearly I'm not the example in that. I, I'm the one who crammed four years of college into five very small years. So the whopping 2.37 GPA, which I'm very proud of. So, so, but that's where I deny something that will ultimately benefit me. But denying of self, denying self, write this down, is when I deny my will for his will, or I deny me for his purpose, for his will. Jesus was the model of that. You know, the night that he was arrested and he realizes what's ahead of him and he prays to his father and he says, and I put it there in your outline, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will 
be done. Lord, I know my desires, I know my will, but I'm yielding that. Lord, it's your will, and I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow regardless of the cost. I'm going to follow no matter how difficult it is, your will be done. So for the disciple, the disciple is the one who says, Lord, I'm putting you first in every area. So when the Lord says, take that step, you know, the disciple says yes. When the Lord says, put me first in this area, the, the disciple says yes. The disciple doesn't have the option to say no to God because he, deny, or he or she denies themselves. He says, God, whatever it is, I'm following you. Now it's also important, just to mention here, it's not on your outline, but self, denying of self is not the same as denying stuff. Uh, many people think that if you become a disciple you have to deny stuff. We're going to see as we travel through Matthew that that's not the question. God loves to bless his children with stuff. Uh, having stuff is good. The question isn't whether you have stuff. The question will always be, does the stuff have you? You know that the stuff has you when God says, hey, give me some of that stuff. And we say, no. That's when you know that the stuff has you. And so you'll always be tested in that. But God loves to bless his children just like you do. So you have this desire to become, this uh, decision to deny self, and, uh, or self, den- deny self. And uh, then there is number three, you want to write down obedience, obedience. And uh, there on your outline it says, take up his cross and follow me. Now some people become offended when you talk about obedience to God. Uh, we understand this in every area of life except when it comes to God. All of a sudden it, it puts up barriers. So you're driving down the street, you've exceeded the speed limit you know, ever so slightly, and all of a sudden there are blue lights in the back of your, you know, in your, in your rearview mirror and uh, you obey by pulling over. You're just doing what they say. You go to work and your boss says, hey, I need you to get this done. You do that. That's just, you're just doing what they say and that's just obedience. So a disciple says, I'm, I'm going to obey, obedience. Now interesting... Um, anyone who isn't willing to obey him can't be his disciple. It doesn't mean that they're not believers, they're not saved. It just means they can't be his disciple. There on your outline it says in verse 24, takes up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting that Jesus uses the cross as an example of what it means to be a disciple. In our culture, we hear people commonly refer to taking up my cross as enduring some type of hardship. Um, but here's the thing, cross, the cross doesn't represent hardship, it represents death. Not, not difficulty, it's death. So go ahead and write this down, the cross means death, not hardship. And it's interesting that Jesus chose that in that first century because crucifixion, uh, which is what the cross was all about, was considered so horrible of a death that Roman citizens were not allowed to be put to death in that way. And those who were condemned to crucifixion, they would have the crossbar of the beam of the cross tied to their arm and they would have to carry that to the place of crucifixion. At that point they would be nailed to the cross and then their feet nailed and then stuck into the ground. So Jesus uses that as, as, as an example, the idea is that taking up your cross does not mean 
bearing a burden. You know, somebody say, you know, my, my husband's cranky, I guess that's just my cross to bear. Now that, that's a difficult hardship, and, but, but that's not, you know, the cross means death. The cross means death. And, and so it implies dying to something. So go ahead and write this down. The cross means dying to self, dying to self. And the person who carried the cross, and it, again, interesting, Jesus, Jesus uses this illustration. The person who carried the cross, they understood they had no hope in this life. That, that this life, they, they knew where it was going to go. So if they had any hope whatsoever, it would not be in this life as they carried their cross. Their hope would be completely in the life to come. Does that make sense? So you, uh, you want to write down that the one carrying the cross placed no hope in this life. Now, there is great blessing in this life. God loves to bless his kids. A disciple will be very blessed, but your hope is always in the next life. There'll be blessing in this life, there'll be effectiveness in this life, but uh, the, the hope is in the next life. Number four, we're going to find that it's a daily choice, a daily choice. Now, when Luke tells the story, he adds a phrase that Matthew leaves out. There in your outline it says, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily, and, uh, and follow me. Now what I love about that is it's a daily decision. That means that if I mess it up today, tomorrow's a new day. And uh, for some of us, sometimes we just need a new day, and we need to start over. And that's the great thing about the one that we follow is you can start over. Is that good news? So you blow it today, and we all do sometimes start over. So that's what it costs. Now that doesn't uh, sound all that exciting at this point, but, but let's take it a next step and say, now why is it that many believers will never become disciples? Uh, like the people that we read about early on that Paul had to write to, they, but they never really become, they never seize the opportunity. Well, verse 25, it says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So that, that, that paragraph there. Now, I, I want to show you something because as I read that in your Bible, some of the words were slightly different. And uh, the reason that the words were slightly different, and I put this on your outline so you can see. It says, whoever wants to save his life. Does everybody see there that the word there in the original language, uh, they would say suke, we would say psyche. Does everybody see that word? Okay, and that was great for the word life. Uh, we'll lose it. But whoever loses his life or psyche will find it. For me, will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul but it's that same word, psyche. Does everybody see that? So, and then it goes on, or what will a man give in, give in exchange for his soul or psyche? So that, that word, suke or psyche, from where we get our word psyche, or psychologist, psychology, that, that word in the original language, means breath, heart, mind, life, or soul. The idea is you, you can translate that anyway, which is why some of the Bibles will say it slight, slightly different. Now that's important because that word psyche means everything, everything. I think it's kind of fun though, uh, where the first line it says, whoever 
wants to save his life. In that word psyche, you can actually put the word mind in there and it's the same. So whoever wants to save his mind will lose it and whoever loses his mind for me will find it. Is that like a great parenting verse? (laughs) Anybody ever parented thought you were losing your mind but it's still a good thing? Good. Okay. So I, I just wanted to highlight that. That's why some of your Bibles will use different words, but every one of those words, because the word psyche means it's, it's all of it. It's all of it. It's not just that one aspect. Well, verse uh, uh, 25, again, he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here, one of the reasons that people don't become a disciple is because of what we would call self-will. Go ahead and write that down, self-will. Uh, and again, this is speaking of discipleship, not salvation. This one says, I have to save myself. I have to look after me. There's no way I could trust him. You know, My back is against the wall and I've got to take steps to take care of me. And they never come to the place where they say, Lord, I will trust you, come what may. Verse 26, he says, And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits, again, his soul, his life, his mind, all of that? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The idea, all of, all of that. It's important to remember, again, this is speaking to disciples. He's not talking about salvation. Uh, but, but many people will lose out on everything that God has for them because they will not, they will not take that step and say, I want to be his disciples. So for this one here, uh, this is the believer who lives their life with the wrong priorities or, or materialism. There's always something else that's the priority, and you can write that down. Wrong priorities or materialism. Uh, if it's choosing what Jesus wants to do as a priority, and there's another priority they have, they tend to choose the other priority. They can't become his disciples. And so that's why verse 26 he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? That's their priorities. I need to get this. And yet at the same time forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So you have uh, this, it's, it's, it's kind of a, um, almost depressing to read this. So what was it about Jesus that the disciples decided that they would follow Jesus with everything. And why is it that for 2,000 years uh, many would be believers and and yet also many would decide that they would make a full-on commitment to what it is that he wants to do. In our society we understand discipleship in every area except when it comes to God. Except when it comes to Jesus. You Guys, you were in high school and you wanted to be on the football team, so you were willing to endure practices every day. And if you went to the coach and said, hey coach, I got this other thing going on, the coach said, figure it out. This is practice. You be here. You commit. You're here. And sometimes uh, at at the end of, uh, you know, before you began the school year, there were two practices a day. Anybody remember that? Two practices a day. And you were there. And you believed, the reason that you made that commitment is that you believed that there was something about being on that team that was so valuable that you were willing to endure whatever it took in order for you to be on that team and to play that game. You understood what it meant to be a disciple. And you rearranged your schedule because if the team was practicing, you were there. You understood what it meant. Some of us here 
you joined the, the armed forces. And uh, whatever it was about that, you believed that there was something valuable enough that you were willing to commit your all to being part of that. So you signed up and you went to boot camp. And uh, whatever it took, you were willing to endure that and go through whatever because this was something that was so important. And then some went on beyond that. If you were in the Army or the Marines or something like that, you went on maybe to airborne school. And when I was in the Army, I went on to airborne school. I'll never forget the first day. We started with 500 people. By the end of the day, we were down to 400 people. 100 people quit, and most of them quit before lunch. But there was something about being a paratrooper that made the rest of us say, no matter what they throw at us, no matter what happens, we're going to endure this. We're going to make this happen. We're going to be there. So what was that? Some went on to special forces, rangers. Some of you were in the military. You went on to become a pilot. And you were willing to endure whatever it took because there was something that you perceived of incredible value. Does that make sense? You went to college and you, for, you, you, you let go of the parties and all that. You studied. And then you went on to grad school and you sacrificed everything. Maybe you went on, you got a doctorate's degree and you poured your life into that because you believed that there was something so valuable it was worth your sacrifice. You understood discipleship. Now, I'm going to share some reasons why uh, you might want to be a disciple and why this is worth sacrificing everything for. But I want you to know something as I get into this. Everything that is a benefit to being a fully committed follower of Jesus, there's going to be another entity that's going to come along and say, that's not true. That's not true. Don't believe that. That will never really happen for you. And, and so many times we as believers, we don't enter into all that God has for us because we listen to another entity as though that entity is telling us the truth and Jesus isn't. Does that make sense? So let's look at this. So a couple of things. This is very quick. Benefits of being a disciple. Paul, an apostle, certainly a disciple, would say this. He would say there in your outline, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Far outweighs them all. So here, here's what the promise is. There is a promise of greater reward than any cost we will ever pay to be a, a fully committed follower of Jesus. Uh, and if there's not a greater reward than any cost that we will ever pay, then he is a liar. Then he is a liar. And we have to, just the bottom line for that. Now, there is also... The promise when somebody says, I'm going to become a disciple, there is the promise of, and you want to write this down, of living this life to my greatest potential. My greatest potential. Uh, Jesus would say in John, now John's telling the same story that we're talking about here, but he adds a, a, a line. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal, to life eternal. Does that sound sort of like what we just read? It's the same conversation. John's just adding another detail. So it's interesting that Jesus here uses the, the picture of a seed. Now the interesting thing about a seed is that when you hold a seed, all it is is potential. That seed doesn't really do anything until it's planted in the ground. Jesus would say until it dies. But once that happens, what comes up is always greater 
than the seed that was planted. You see, the acorn is planted, but what comes up? What's an oak tree? Uh, the, The fruit seed is planted, but what comes up? Well, it's a fruit tree. And when that comes up, there's great fruitfulness. So much so that the oak tree never looks back and says, remember when we were just a seed? Wouldn't it be great to just be a seed again? The oak tree looks on and says, look at what, what, what we've become. What, look, look what's happened here. The fruit tree would say, well, look at all this fruit that's come from my life. There, there's a life of effectiveness. There's a life of fruitfulness. It's living to the full potential. But that doesn't happen in God's kingdom until that seed dies and it becomes planted. And then as it begins to grow, that's where we experience the effectiveness, the fruitfulness, and and living at the great potential. One of the greatest things in my life is when I share something from the Bible and one of you comes up to me and says, says, you shared that and it changed how I thought about this or changed everything. I never saw that before. There is no greater sense of fulfillment than knowing that God has used you in some way. But first there has to be that denying of self and then God uses you with great effectiveness. Does that make sense? Many will never become effective because as they are the seed, they listen to the other voice that says he'll never use you in that way. He, he, that'll never happen for you. You'll never really become everything that God wants for you if you follow him. That's another voice. That's not his voice. The invitation is open to anyone. Another benefit that you find throughout the the New Testament especially, Old Testament too, I I love using the illustration of the 70 disciples because we tend to go to the 12 disciples, but at one time there were 120 disciples. There were 70 disciples. And uh, when Jesus sent out, and the reason I use the 70 disciples is because they're a lot like us. And so notice what, what happens here on your outline. It says, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs. Now these are disciples. They're not apostles, the 12 apostles. 70 disciples who are following him. And then it says, the 70 returned with joy. Notice that's their emotion saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And as you read the the story, what you find is a whole lot more goes on, but they come back in joy as they go out and do what it is that God calls them to do. So one of the things that you'll find when you decide to become a disciple is that there will be, and you want to write this down, a continuous growing faith. It never ends. It never ends. You never get to that place and say there's no more stepping out for for God. It's just continuous and God takes us. Now faith is, and you want to write this down, not just believing in God but actually believing God. When the 70 went out They couldn't take anything with them. And Jesus says, just trust me, step out, see what happens. They go out, happens everything the way that God says it. They come back and now they're filled with joy. They're excited over all that took place. Also, it says that when the 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What I love about that is that they experienced, and you want to write this down, an empowerment to be used by God. Again, when you, you sense God using you in some way and you've been empowered in that way, there's nothing more fulfilling than that experience. Also, what we're going to find is that there is the promise of supernatural provision. Supernatural provision. This is the part that, that and we'll talk about this when we get to it. Uh, we'll we'll uh, amplify this a little bit more. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house, brother, sister, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, we would say businesses, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, and it says along with persecutions, not everybody's going to like it, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The idea is not everybody is going to trust, so they won't step out, they won't become a disciple. But those that do, and he says, here's the thing. My commitment to you, if you step out and follow me, that you're going to be blessed in this life also. With persecutions, not everybody's going to like it, but God wants to bless us in this life also. Many of us miss that because we come from a church background that says if you really follow God, you can have nothing. And uh, there is nothing further from the truth than that. We'll talk about that when we get there. But here's the best news. There on your outline it says, if we endure, and I'm going to call that discipleship, we shall also reign with him. That's speaking about eternity. When you read the Bible, and again, many times our understanding of theological things has to do with pictures that we've seen and stories that we've heard, but they have nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, Many people would say, I don't want to go to heaven because I don't want to spend eternity sitting on a cloud playing a harp. You cannot find that anywhere in your Bible. But here's what you do find. In the places where we are told about eternity, it talks about reigning with him as, as kings, or being kings who also reign with him. Which is very interesting because if that's true, uh, then here's what heaven means. And I want you to write this down. It means leadership, administration, and responsibility. Leadership, administration, and responsibility. Normally I add creativity, but that's a conversation for another day. The idea is that what we do here prepares us for what we do there. A disciple places no hope in this life, although he's going to be blessed in this life, but he's preparing for what it is that God wants to do in his eternal life. Does that make sense? So here's the question. Am I a disciple? Each of us has to ask that question. If not, why not? Why not? Could it be because I've spent much of my life listening to somebody tell me that that's not true? And I find as I step into eternity, I've really believed the wrong voice. Let that not be you. But if you say, well, I want to be a disciple. Where do I begin? Well, again, uh, it's a much bigger conversation. But let's start here. Let's start here. On your outline, the first thing that we said, if anyone desires, there has to be a desire. Do you want to be? Well, then you can be. But then, it will, then the next step will be the denial of the selfish nature as you step into what it is that God has for you. So here's the question. What's the last thing that God said, here's what I want you to do, here's how I want you to step forward, here's the area where I want you to put me first in your life, and I looked at God and said, no. The first step for you in discipleship will be to go back to that and say, yes, because you are the priority. And from now on, it will be thy kingdom come and no longer my kingdom come. 
And when you do that, it's going to be an incredible journey and God's going to do amazing things in your life. Okay? Did I put you to sleep? Good. Let's close in prayer and uh, pray for the, the right team. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, here's our desire. Lord, for many of us, we read this and something inside that we know is not you tells us that that's crazy. That'll never happen. You'll never be able to do that in, in, in our lives. And uh, so for many, Lord, we never enter into or seize the opportunity that you give us because we've listened to another voice. Today we turn and we say, I want that. It's valuable enough to commit my all. There is incredible benefit. And so I commit today. And so for me today, the first step will be to go back to the last thing that you said, take care of this and I'll take care of that. And then I'll begin, as I say, your will be done. And Lord, I'm asking you, we are asking you to lead us on the most incredible journey that we could ever go on. Like the seed that's planted as we die to self, make us incredibly fruitful. Lord, I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.